Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the DLC Drop Podcast. Today my guest is Ed Ofterdinger, who is a very significant person in my professional story. He's the managing partner at Beers and Cutler, my very first office job. Well, today he's a co-author of the book Conscious, Capable, and Ready to Contribute, which shares that employee development can become the highest form of social contribution Ed has a tremendous business story and a lot of insights on leadership. Let's talk to Ed. Drop in the untold stories of industry leaders, influencers, and insights on future innovation. I'm John Davidson, and this is the DLC DLC Drop Drop Podcast. Podcast. All right. Welcome, Ed Ofterdinger. It's my pleasure to have you here on the podcast you are arguably maybe my most anticipated guest personally, so I appreciate you joining me. Thank you for having me, John. I've been looking forward to it myself. Absolutely. So for people who are listening to the podcast, a lot of people know my story that I was on the skateboard tour. I broke my ankle. I end up moving to Washington, D.C., where I know one person who said, John, you should go to a a temp agency to try to find a job. And I said, what's a temp agency? (laughs) Because I'm from this small farming town in Central California. And I I go to this temp agency. I do my tests. They said, John, we'll call you in three to five days with an offer. Okay, I'm kind of bummed. I thought I was going to have the job the next day. I thought that's how it worked. I was a little naive. Signing my paperwork, about to leave this temp agency literally opening the glass door to walk out and this woman grabs me by the shoulder says john do you want a job starting tomorrow and i said yes not what is it (laughs) just do they pay cash and she said well it's this place called beers and cutler and i thought alcohol and knives i'm in (laughs) (laughs) turns out that the name of the founders were jim beers and john cutler and it was a tax firm that I knew nothing about, but I quickly found out was one of the top 50 best places to work in D.C., voted one of the top 25 best managed firms in the United States and the fastest fastest growing independent tax firm in the nation. And the managing partner was our guest today, Ed Offerdinger. So, welcome. Thank you. I remember it like it was yesterday. (laughs) Yeah, you remember it exactly how I do, right? (laughs) Pretty much, uh, maybe. So one thing that's, you know, I just love putting a face to one of the people who was so instrumental in providing this amazing experience for me, because that was my first office job. And the result of working there for two years was I said, wait a minute, office jobs don't all suck. I've seen office space, but that's not every office. But I, I could have just as easily had my first temp office experience be a terrible place to work where people treated me terribly. But instead, it was this tremendous culture. You know, there's probably more interesting work than tax, one could argue. I'm delivering mail. I'm cleaning out, you know, conference rooms. I'm recovering the receptionist lunch hour. But everybody treated me with such respect. I got hired on. And the thing where I want to lead into the book here was you came down through my last weekend there at BNC. And I was so touched because I thought it was so cool. Like the guy at the top is coming to talk to the guy at the bottom. (laughs) That was kind of how I saw it anyway. And it was so 
generous that you came and you said, John, thank you for your time here. I hear you're leaving us. And I said to you, I said, Ed, when my name is on the building, what do I need to know? And I remember what you said is, John, it's all about the people. And we often spend more time in our lives with the people at work than we do even with our families. And there's a lot of talented people who apply to work here. But what's more important than smart, capable people is good people and that they fit into the culture. And that was something that has really shaped my trajectory into business. And so I'd love to just hand that over to you and and get your take on that. I think the first thing I would say is uh, 17 years later, I feel like many of the things that are in the book and I talk about all the time are those things. You know, one thing that I remember very vividly about that time are some of the people that you worked with, you know, people like Deb Smith and Vanita. And, you know, we you know, we called the client facing people. So it was tax as well as consulting the practice, you know, so the, that's the client facing people. And then we very intentionally, you may remember this decided that rather than call people admin and administration or overhead or infrastructure or all these great things like that, we call them practice support because what we were trying to do was say everybody that's here is helping the client one way or another. That's and right. so when we we sort of empowered you to do something that was really important, which was, you know, at the time you thought, okay, I got to you know, walk around and make sure the conference rooms are good and all this stuff. But that's a client experience thing, right? And you're, right. you're all about client experience now. And you think those little things really, really make a big difference. We spent a ton of time on things like our core values and really thinking about what they really meant. In fact, at one point we thought, maybe we'll have details matter as a core value because it really is the sort of the little things. But yeah, I remember, I remember it was a great growing, booming time. We thought we were geniuses. Of course, some of it was the economy was amazing. And (laughs) the DC economy was really something special, but, but yeah, it was, it was a fun time. And, and, you know, I'm looking at, I actually have the uh, little card that we had with the core values and, you know, uh, it basically said hire the best and provide opportunities for growth. Mm. And you know, I always believed that the one plan I had no idea how to manage was how to maintain, you know, but growth is so much more fun. So how do we, how do we create those opportunities for people? Even people who coming off of a skateboarding tour <laughs> showed up for a temp job. So yeah, I mean, it was, it was a wonderful time and so many, so many great friends and it was so, so cool to see your success. Well, I appreciate that. You know, something that's really stuck with me that I experienced at Beers and Cutler too was the Myers-Briggs class. Hmm. I remember it like yesterday. I remember going in there and I'm an ENFP, by the way. I haven't Hmm. taken that test since I left Beers and Cutler, so I'm curious if that's changed at all. (laughs) But I remember the things that struck me about that. One was I had it from the mindset of at work because I think sometimes we can be different in work as opposed to outside of work. But number one... Beerson Cutler invested all this time in getting every single employee, I think it was about 300 employees at that time, to take, I don't know how many hours it was, it was at least a one hour class. Oh, sure. And we, not only did we identify what we were, but we learned about what everybody else was like. And on our desks, next to our name tag, on our name tag, was our Myers-Briggs. And what was so cool about that, I think it was probably most effective for managers, but it was also effective just for colleagues, was I could walk up to anybody's anybody's desk and see their Myers-Briggs and I would instantly know how to interact with them and what they respond to. 
Right. And now, at attacks from the joke would be everybody's an ISTJ, <laughs> but, <No. laughs> which is the exact opposite of me, coincidentally. But talk a little bit about why mm. you did that and what the benefits were to the people in your workplace. Yeah. Wow. What what a great memory. I, I will tell you something funny right now. When I interview people, I play this little game with myself even today, which is I. If I'm going to spend more than a half hour with them and they've taken Myers-Briggs, which I always kind of work into my questions, yeah. I, I play a little game to see if I can deduce in a 30 to 45 minute period what they are, you know, because it's, and I'm usually right because it's, it's, it's just very powerful. That is a great segue in a sense into, into the coaching world that I'm in because in the late nineties, Jim Beers, very forward thinking guy. And he realized even though we were very small at the time, that it was worth investing in professional development for everybody. And, and, you know, that meant investing dollars because these things aren't free. And so we brought a couple people in to help us. Dave McGuire, who ended up being my coach, which we may talk about, I imagine. Joe Courier. And then they they recommended uh, that we bring in a consultant, Mary Frestel. Yes. Mary Cameron, now Mary Frestel. And she brought Myers-Briggs to us. Now, the funny thing that preceded you is that she said, well, we got to start somewhere. So what we did was all the partners did Myers-Briggs. Now, the thing about Myers-Briggs, which is great, is it's a personality test. Yeah. You know, these two ladies felt that there was sort of a fabric to life. There's 16 basic types. I have a book. I have books everywhere because that's the way I roll. So when I'm coaching, I'll frequently roll over and grab a book. And I have type talk at work right over here to my oh, right. Mary gave me that book. I yes. still have it. <laughs> that's right. I'm staring and I'm an INTJ just for the record. But so that, that's probably why I got into management and got out of accounting. But, you know, anyway, but my partner, interestingly, Catherine is an INFP. So very, very close to you. So anyway, louder at parties. Also, so the P part means we're kind of deciding things as we're walking in the door. And, you know, my, my challenge is I decide too fast. So, but anyway, what we did was all the partners did, and I don't know if you ever heard this, but what we did next, Mary said, let's have all of your EAs do it. Because the interaction every day between oh, yes. EAs and the, and the partners, and then we obviously expanded out, all the interns did it, and it became a thing. And you, you nailed it. What it really is is not... I jokingly used to say to people, oh, well, I used to think he was just nuts. Now I just real, I just realize he's wired differently. Yeah. And the, the power of being able to approach someone, you know, with no judgment and recognizing that we're all just different. Mm. Wow. When you can harness that and recognizing that Catherine and me, for example, we are yin and yang. And what a powerful combo if you can sort of get over each other's differences. And that's part of why. One of the things we believe in, obviously, is embracing differences or celebrating differences. So, but that was that was a really important thing. And I, I tell you, I have in, former interns talk about that all the time. So that's that's neat. That, neat that you remember that. Yeah, it's definitely stuck with me. And so, what you're talking about there is you're essentially you're investing in employees. You're investing in the people in your workplace, and that goes directly into the book here, which I have handy. And I was just on vacation in Portland last week with the family, and my entire plane ride over and back was spent just in this book. Number one, and I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you, <laughs> but I can't believe how great a read this was. Right before, <laughs> for our listeners, right before we started recording, I said, Ed, did you write this yourself? This is amazing. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I didn't mean it in a, a negative way, but wow, what a read. 
Thank you. And I will just credit the fact that I, I had help. Anytime it ties right into uh, the subject of my life, I worked with a coach. Imagine that. You know, I, I always wanted to write fiction. I've been writing, you know, I'm a writer at heart. My grandmother got, got me into reading. My mom was a big reader. But I always wanted to write fiction. And but that's something I'd never done before. So if I, I would say if I'm hiring myself out as a coach, I would be sort of foolish, right, not to get some help. So it, it was great. And, you know, I worked very hard. And what do they say? All writing is rewriting. There you go. Well, yeah, it, it definitely came through your effort. And to give people an idea of the book, essentially the core message here, if I have it correct, is the higher purpose that companies can have is investing in their people and then enabling them, empowering them to contribute to society. Do I have that accurately? Yeah, I, I think it's. I think that's exactly right. And I would say this, that I've always known that investing in people would lead to the best business results. Okay. So if you just want to be capitalists about it, that's sort of very obvious. And I'm not the only person that thinks that. And then if you can go kind of the next step, that's really good for them as humans. And then that can be good for them. They go forth. It's good for your brand, et cetera. Um, But ultimately Catherine came up with the idea. Well, what if the whole point of this maybe is that, huh, Maybe it's all about social contribution. Maybe if we empower people and we put that into the mission of the company, then hmm, maybe there's something bigger there. That really took me from a previous perspective I have with branding, sponsorship, and marketing, which is my world now in the esports world, to where you're going. And what I realized in my time with GameStop, PRG, these esports companies, is that brands have a ton of money, right? way more than individuals. I've been in rooms where somebody said, I need to figure out how to spend a million dollars before the end of the year. It's already allocated. It's like, holy crap, right? <laughs> what could a million dollars do in you know, another context or to help somebody? And so I've always said if in marketing, which you could say is maybe a little bit of a lower purpose <laughs> than societal contribution, but I always consult people to say, look, if you want to do great things, you want to do cool things, you want to do things that impact a community, engage brands and help them understand how to fund it in a way that results in ROI for them. So essentially saying brands, companies have a ton of money. If you want to do anything, it costs money. And so the bridge that your book helped take me to, and I'd love to get your take on this, is from my mindset, it was a marketing perspective. It was enhancing experiences. Brands have dollars to enhance experiences for audiences. But taking it a step further is saying, okay, if people are going to get invested in and developed, who is best set up with the resources that are required, a lot of those are financial, to develop these folks? And where are they spending the most time? Both of those answers is the company that they work for. And so it's, I think, then it's opening the eyes of the company on why it makes sense to do that. And one thing that I really loved about your book is it wasn't easy in the book. There was a lot of pushback from characters in the book saying, wait a minute, Andrew, the CEO, you want to do all this fun, fuzzy, make you feel good, contribute to society stuff. We're in a crisis right now. We're losing clients, 
our revenue is declining, we have all this turnover, and you want to do this fun, fuzzy stuff? We need to worry about revenue. And through this story, they work through that to understand that actually developing the people in your building contributes to revenue in addition to contributing to society. Yes. Well, <laughs> you cl- you clearly read the book. Thank you. I, you know, there's some some data that I would just point out first. So as you know, because you've read it, I describe myself as a conscious capitalist and I'm a part of conscious capitalism and the the publisher is Conscious Capitalism Press. And the reason I went there is that if you were to read Conscious Capitalism, the book or the predecessor book called Firms of Endearment, not sure I would have called it that, but (laughs) literally over a 10 year period, the companies that you would describe as best places to work, who invested in people who you could see were doing more, they outperformed the S&P eight to one. (laughs) It's, it's, so I don't know why anybody argues this point other than we do live in a world of short termism because unfortunately, you know, shareholders and institutions, you know, live quarter to quarter. And if we could solve that problem, Maybe that'll be the next book. I don't know, but I I haven't figured that out yet. But if you're playing the long game, it's just unequivocally smart to invest in your people long-term because they stay longer. And as, you know, at the beginning of how to shift at the back of the book, you know, there's the quote essentially says, you know, build it so they'll come and love it and thrive knowing that they may leave. So it's what they say about your company that that matters if they do leave. So so that's a, you know, immensely branding point. You think about great employers and, I, and the funny thing is if you do it with that sort of detached mindset, people stay longer anyway. And it's, you know, it's just, and you saw something, yeah, we've got some data in there too. You know, what's it cost for, you know, the cost of turnover is somewhere between 150 and 200% of a, of one year annual salary. Right. So just imagine, imagine, and you remember when Andrew sort of has to convince some of the share, you know, some of his partners. Oh, what a well, well, one of the ways you get some people is just show them the money, and it and it's really unequivocal if you do this stuff, you know. And yet, you got to be able to have the money to invest, right? And it's a lot. There's front-loaded investment that pay pays out long term. And yeah. what I love about really the argument with conscious, capable, and ready to contribute, which is the name of the book, is it's not just convincing people that they should care more about morality and society than money. It's saying when you invest in these things, there's also this benefit. So there's not necessarily a choice that has to be made. If there's any choice, it's more short term. But one thing that I really took from the book, and I've I've heard this throughout my business career, is think long term. You know, you want to talk about long term thinkers, Jeff Bezos is one that comes to mind. And it's hard to, you know, criticize his business results. But can you share a little bit for our audience some insights on whether it's how to think long-term or the benefits of thinking long-term? Yeah, for sure. You know, when I was first tapped to be leader of Beers and Cutler, Jim Collins published his first book. It was with the other partner and it was called Built to Last. And there are many, many great lessons in there that preceded Good to Great and, and whatnot. And one of them was the tyranny of ore. There's a chapter, it's my favorite chapter in the book, that great companies, I think great leaders, great individuals, they don't live in a world of either or. You know, it's an and, you know, and the idea that the things you can find that do, that may benefit people may also benefit your profits or you don't have to, it's not a trade-off, which is actually one of the fundamentals of conscious capitalism too, where you have a stakeholder mindset. There's no trade-offs. You can't, 
you can't make your company all about shareholder profits to the expense of your customers, to the expense right. of your people. Similarly, you can have a wonderful place to work, but if you do too much in that direction, then you know you you forget. You don't have shoulders. a place to work anymore. <laughs> you don't have a place to work, so you always have to balance things. Look, you know, David Rubenstein is a, a, a fan of his. He started Carlisle, one of the founders of Carlisle, and he talks long term all the time. You know, I think that the mindset towards thinking. Oh, here, here's a way I would answer. So one of the things I ask every one of my clients to do, and this is individual coaching of CEOs is I asked them to, well, I asked them to write me two papers, hmm. two pages. No more, the first one is no more than two pages. And that's, that's what makes it hard. Your story up until now. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you think about, you know, after even a 15 year career, two pages. Wow. How do you get, then the second paper is at the top of the page, they write in the next 10 years hmm. and then they got to run with it. Because what I want to get them thinking about is a, a longer term, not at the end of 10 years, but what are those things you want to accomplish? If you just look at the great, great, great companies, remember built to last, it was it impacted me. None of the companies that were even studied, they all had to have been around 50 years or more. So right. your mindset was all very, very long term. I don't know. It's one of those where I have a hard time uh, explaining why it's important because it's just in my DNA. I just know it is. It's because you have to be willing, like you said, you have to be willing to say, okay, we could spend a hundred thousand dollars on something other than, you know, uh, Myers-Briggs for all the interns and every employee and the training and all, you know, and, and the fact that all of the partners have coaches, we, holy smokes, you know, you got to convince people who may be leaving next year, partners that may be retiring. Now this is good for the long term. But it's sort of unequivocal that, you know, you got, it's just what investments are. And they, and they, they pay over time. Uh, well, one thing that I've seen in some of the places that I've worked is it's a kill the closest snake mentality is what we have. It's like, oh, there's this problem. Ah, snake, snake, snake. And you're just the looking at the problems that pop up, pop up, pop up when the perspective needs to be more, I need to get out of the snake pit. So... I mean, part of in this book, what they're trying to figure out to give some people an idea of the, you know, not all the book, you, we still want you to read it. We don't want to read it for you. <laughs> but essentially, this this company that Ed wrote about, they're going through a crisis financially, and they realize that they really need this higher purpose and all of these things. So you could very well argue to this company shift in the book, they could have very easily looked at kill the closest snake, right? What's the closest snake? We're losing our revenue. We need more clients. Double down, cut costs. Um, is there anything that you found that helps people shift their mentality from immediate issues to, no, get out of the snake pit? Well, I think I'm thinking about uh, the, in, the, in the story, all of those things happened, by the way, the CFO, the head of marketing, all the people like, are you crazy? In fact, his co-founder wanted him to, you know, what are you crazy? And, and there was a dream involved and there's a lot of reasons that things come to him, but, but everybody was sort of fighting. And that was actually the point. I, I wrote that intentionally because that's reality. You right. can't go alone unless you happen to be Jeff Bezos, I suppose, but you, you, you need buy-in and you need, you need to think through how you're going to, you know, how you're going to convince people to do something. And so if you recall, you know, one of the scenes, there's a conversation where one of the partners is making a pretty, you know, 
strong argument why this doesn't make sense. And, and I think Andrew drops the name Herb Kelleher. <laughs> and so Herb Kelleher, of course, is the founder, essentially, of Southwest Airlines. And all you have to know about Southwest Airlines is that they were the fastest growing and highest profitable airline for year after year after year. And Herb Kelleher said the business of, you know, unlike Milton Freeman, who said something different, Kelleher said, you know, the business is, business is people. Always has been, always will be. And they built this amazing culture and it just paid. So I go there because I do think that when you can show facts like all of the the companies that are in conscious capitalism that are wildly profitable and wildly successful, you know, sometimes data is really actually all you need. And so certainly that's one strategy. Then you can also, you, you can reach out to people based on getting to their heart. There are people that want to do the right thing. More and more people are purpose-driven. And so, you know, Andrew goes after that group as well. He also learned, as you recall, and I'll take a breath after this, that you you have to choose all of your stakeholders wisely. So he chose the wrong financial partner, okay? He chose a partner that was very short-term mindset. Why? Because the guy would give him the money at terms so that he could he could expand and invest. Yeah. He ends up finding a much better choice who believed in the long-term vision. So not everybody's going to believe it, but with a little more care, you can find the right partners, the right customers, the right, you know, investors. Absolutely. I want to get a little bit of insight into you writing this book. So even though, boy, I think it's been 17 years since we've known each other. Obviously, we Mm -hmm. haven't had a ton of interaction. We re-engaged recently. We worked together for two years. I wasn't in all of the board meetings that you were in, but I did clean out the meeting room before and after a few times. But so I know you a little bit, but obviously we're we're not best friends currently is, is what I'm getting to. Unless you feel differently. Let me know. I'd love to be your best friend. Accepted. So and that's how it's done, folks. No, but I saw so much of you in Andrew. And so I was curious how much, you know, he's running. He was not driving a Thunderbird, though, which I remember you drove at BNC. But I'm curious how much of Andrew was really you and how much of Catherine was Pat or somebody else, if you're able to share. Thank you. There's a lot of Andrew, a lot of me and Andrew. If you went to the AO People Partners website, you would see that my favorite quote is, misery is optional. That's a quote that appears in the book, actually not attributed to, to Andrew, but to, to his coach. So, so there, there are things you can't help but, you know, write. I found it inspiring or I had, you, know, you just go back to the things that you know and events that you have. I've had people do some of the things, bad things in the, <laughs> that happened to Andrew. I've had people do those to me. On the other hand, there's a lot of it's just flat out made up. And that was really fun. And, and honestly, Pat and Catherine are, Pat really isn't Catherine. So yeah, I, I think it's probably good that nobody ever asked that, but it's good to say there are certain things, but everybody's a bit of a mashup. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious, particularly because several of our I have two, we have 21 endorsers, two of which are managing partners at Baker Tilly. <laughs> so yes, uh, yeah, Andrew's what, I was going to ask you who Will was in the book because I don't, you know, he's he's a little blustery. So we'll, we'll gonna, let that one go to the Yeah, please, please let that one go. But I could, Andrew's wife is clearly inspired by mine. Let's just put it that way. That's awesome. 
Well, one of the roles in here is Dave, one of the characters, and he's the coach to Andrew. When we reconnected recently, I said, Ed, I've recently worked with a coach. Working with a coach over the course of COVID has really changed my entire mentality, changed my life. I just see everything completely differently. It's like the rewiring, my mind was just rewired. And one of the things that engaged us was you said, well, you know, I'm doing coaching. You shared that you're writing the book, but you shared on our previous call that you worked with a coach for a very long time. And I'd love for you just to share. It's obvious in the book how instrumental that coach is to Andrew. And can you share what your coach provided for you over the years of working together? Sure. So my coach, uh, I mentioned earlier was a, a guy named Dave McGuire and Dave's passed away, I guess, five years ago. I was with Dave almost 20 years. In fact, people would say, wow, you, you must be a real slow study if you needed the same guy for 20 years. But the beauty of it is, as you know, the, my job changed all the time, whether it's because we grew or because we did the merger and I had, you know, three other different jobs and things like that. And, and Dave, other than Don and my wife was really the, you know, the, the single constant. And, you know, I like to say with Dave, Dave was, he was the consummate thinking partner. There would be days where he would show up with something that he really wanted me to learn. But many times it was just, he'd show up, I would start talking. Dave was a classic. He was not much on the technology. Like, I don't think I ever got an email from him, but I got, <laughs> boy, did I get voicemails. I yeah. this is this is not an exaggeration. I would come in and I would have met him with him on a Tuesday, say. I'd come in Wednesday morning and the light would be blinking on my phone and it would be Dave would <laughs> buckle in. This is going to be a long one. Our voicemail machine ran out after three minutes and he got used to that. He goes, I think this is going to be three of them. And he would praise us. I was thinking, I slept on it. I slept on it. That, that's one of the things he taught me. Mm. Sleep on it. Very few things need to be so reactive, you know, and that would be one thing he taught me. Um, he taught me a lot about things like when I want people that I work with know I refer frequently to psychological contract. Sounds very fancy. But from a recruiting standpoint, what employers tend to think sometimes is, hey, you're going to want to work for me. You know, so it's all about that. And you can, you do the job and all this stuff, but they forget that it's actually a contract. Mm. When John shows up, John has expectations of Baker Tilly, Pearson Collar, AO people partners. Right. And when you, if you forget that it's broken and you're, you know, things like that. So, but there were oftentimes, you know, we went, some of the things Andrew goes through, we went through, you know, business is not easy and having someone up, very important point. Dave also, because he was there from the start of the professional development program at the firm, he knew the players. He didn't coach all the, play, all the partners, but he was in the fabric of the organization. Catherine and I today, we have many enterprises that that's the case where we're just embedded in that, you know, and we understand the DNA of the place. So yeah. when I was thinking about doing something, he would never violate a confidence any more than I will for coaching. Mm -hmm. but he could steer me away from something because you're like, I don't think you're really thinking about that. We did a lot of 360s, which we do in our practice today. I learned a lot about myself, you know, and you know, Dave was such an interesting guy. He was originally a, he was originally a priest. Hmm. In fact, in fact, he was a, he went, he went to a silent monastery in France for five years, boy five from years. Chicago, five years. And this is a true story. He says, 
after five years, you have to decide whether to stay forever or go home. He says, I like to talk too much. I went back to Chicago. I was going to say, those long voicemails make sense now. He was storing that up. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got, exactly. He got a job in the, pay, in the mail room. Wow. There you go, John. Familiar? Yep. Mail, the mail room at what was then about the fifth largest bank in the country, Continental Bank. Mm. And Dave ended up being the head of HR at Continental Bank, which failed in the early 80s. But it had thousands of employees, and Dave then turned his sights on basically outplacement and helping people land on their feet, which led to all these other things. Really, just an amazing human. And um, really, you know, I tell people I knew, I'll take a breath here in a second, I promise. I, I knew for a long time that I wanted to do this kind of work. I just didn't. I figured I would do it at some point in my career. <clears throat> I'm inspired by people like Alan Alda. Mm-hmm. who are in their 80s and they're still creating, they're yeah. still doing generative. And so I, I no doubt I was not going to stop working and trying to do stuff. And Dave was a pretty good model for me for, you know, how I want to live my life and how I want to, you know, how I want to coach. How did you first meet Dave? You know, a client of Beers and Cutler knew Dave and I don't even know how they knew each other and they introduced it wasn't the way Andrew meets his guy I made that one up but he introduced us I think he introduced Dave and Joe Courier who was an organizational psychologist to me and Jim say probably 1996 or 7 something like that so a while back so for people who are trying to figure out should I get a coach or the type of coach that they want to get what would be your advice in finding the right coach for yourself? I think the first thing with coaching there is there are all types of uh, disciplines. And so there are career coaches and there are life coaches and and then leadership coaches, which is what I do and a couple others. But so the first thing that I would recommend, I feel like I'm recommending, you know, get three before you get a roof, get three estimates. Um, uh, the truth is, whenever anybody comes to us and they're thinking about coaching, we always suggest it's personal. Ke- there are a lot of qualified coaches. Personal chemistry really does matter. And so, yeah. you know, don't rush into it unless you may love the first one you meet. But, you know, if you can get somebody to recommend two or three to you, take the time to, to, to you know, to interview them and realize that what you're really entering into is a talking listening relationship. So you gotta, you you can't not like their personality. You know, so I I know it seems kind of obvious, but just because they're the best at something doesn't mean, you know, uh, know, or at least on paper. So I I think personality is really important. I do think you, some people rely heavily on tools, Mm -hmm. uh, things like leadership circle or Myers-Briggs. And so you want to find out if that's not your bag, then if you just want somebody to talk to, you know, so you've got to, got to kind of find out how they do it. There are, there is an international coach federation and there are a number of universities. I went back to uh, Georgetown, which was the first university that had a program. So I think there's some level, you know, actually Catherine and I had a conversation early on in our partnership about whether I should, and I'm so glad I did. But so I would say, yeah, I mean, people, there are credentials. And so you should make sure the person, you know, has been doing this a while and is, is credentialed. But at the end of the day, it does come down to what do you want out of it? And, you know, how does the, how does the chemistry, can you trust them? Because you got to tell them everything. I mean, it's shocking the things that I end up listening to. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. Yeah. 
So both you and Dave have transitioned, it sounds like, from full-time careers in business to then coaching. What advice would you give people who are in their career and they're they're thinking, you know what, I think what I want to do is add value to people to coach, to share what I've learned. What is the best way to evaluate and then take that step into coaching? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you, what, what immediately comes to mind <clears throat> for me was my process. It helps that I'm, you know, I've been a journaler for a long, long time. And, you know, I like to write things down. And what, what, what happened for me was <clears throat> I was keeping, you know, I was keeping journals and after a few years, I kept seeing the same patterns. So that leads to a point, which is start thinking about this, not when you, you know, when your hair's on fire, <laughs> you know, start, if you can start thinking in a little bit longer mindset about the things that you really, really like to do. First off, you know, I was talking to a guy yesterday and, and I, it's a very simple exercise. It's kind of funny. I, I just said, okay, just put a line down the middle of paper. And over on the left, just make a list of all the things that you would say are must-haves in a job. And don't make it just about money or just about where. But what are the things you really like to do? Do you like people? Some people don't like people. So, yeah. And then the other, the other side is can't have. So if you're tired of traveling, somebody may offer you this great job other than the traveling part. And if you're not careful, you'll take the job and you'll continue to be miserable. So I would say being very intentional, you know, hmm kind of ties into conscious, but being very intentional, having a process of some sort, you know, Adam Grant's book that's out right now called think again. I mean, he talks about doing a three-year checkup all the time, you know, on a regular basis, have a three-year career checkup. Hmm. Uh, I don't know if I'm that quite that prescriptive, but, but I do think that being very, yeah, very disciplined about it. I, I it really helped me. And then, then it's kind of like a, it's like a good roast. You know, after a while, then the meat just falls off the bone. And I knew. I mean, I knew I was ready. You know, I didn't need my period of discernment was over. <laughs> I was ready. So you can't just walk around. I guess I would summarize with saying, you know, you can't just walk around thinking, gosh, maybe I'm in a bad job, or maybe I should do something different. That's the start. Then right. you got to kind of kind of do it. And it's kind of ironic because you asked me, how do you get into coaching? Having somebody, whether it's a mentor, a best friend, a spouse, or a, actually a coach, during that period of time can be super helpful too. I had Dave. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, could, I could run my terrible ideas by him and he'd go, I don't know about that one. So I think, you know, do the work, but also have, have people that you trust. And, you know, trust is a funny word too. I mean, trust as in, not that they can keep your confidence, which is... Right but they actually have some skills, you know, right. You know, I, and John, you're wonderful, but I don't really want you to, you know, remove my molars. You know, <laughs> I may try, I may trust you to talk to, you know, see what I'm saying? So having, uh, yeah, good. I'm happy to, happy to hear that, even though you're my new best friend. Right. Now, did you, when you were going into coaching, did you have any sort of conf, conflict or complex, I guess I should say, saying, well, can I really tell people what to do? do? You know, if somebody comes to me with their problems, do I have the answers? Or was that something that you were just so wise and so experienced that uh, you just said, no, I know, I do know the answers. Here's the funny thing. So the dirty little secret of coaching is it's all about questions. Hmm. So I always say that what? I think that, yeah, exactly. 
consulting, you know, arguably is kind of like 80% advice to 20% listen mm. and co- coaching is the exact opposite. So there isn't a lot of me saying, go do this. But if I ask you what, you know, sort of the literature would call a powerful question, I may lead you to the answer that I would give you. Right. But I didn't give it to you. Well, and in the book, that's how Dave works with Andrew, right? He's always asking him those questions and he's like, for once, could you just tell me the answer? He's like, Andrew, the way you figure this out is by finding the answer. That was one of my favorite lines to write. It just hit me. I'm, I'm a big music guy and <clears throat> I've always loved the band. And so the great song, The Wait, where, you know, the man shook his head, grinned and said, no, you know. And so Dave says, no, was all he said, you know, and it's no, that's not, that is not how it works. So that's a really important role of coaching. But, but the other thing, John, you, you know, you reach a point in your career where people do rely on, I mean, I have experience and I have skills. So my clients may, we may end up talking about acquisitions. You know, I'm working with CEOs that, you know, are in their early forties that are growing their businesses and they want to, Hey, I mean, I have no problem giving advice because that's essentially what I did for, you know, 35 years before getting into this. So, but it, but it's really important, important about coaching is everybody's different and you need to draw out the best in them. Dave's style with me was different than it was with other partners. It should be. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's a really bad question. I'll tell you funny. The other thing you learned day one at Georgetown is rule number one of coaching, which is just kind of funny. It has a little bit to do with what you said, but not much. Rule number one of coaching, never coach anyone without their permission. That seems logical. Yeah. Rule number two, never coach your spouse girlfriend, your boyfriend, even with permission. (laughs) So well said, well said, you need those, those healthy boundaries. Yes. Talk to me a little bit more about this book. What was your favorite part of writing it for, for listeners? If it hasn't been obvious yet, the kind of the, the structure of this book is a fable. And so essentially what I love is it's, telling it's it's sharing all these lessons or i should say teaching all these lessons through a story that's very engaging and there's parts of it where he's figuring out you know he's got he starts with his business kind of falling apart got to figure that out recognizes a higher purpose i don't want to give too much away we still want you to read the book but what were what were parts of it that you just you know the book was kind of writing itself yeah so earlier you asked me you know was there a conflict with me feeling confident of giving advice? Yeah. No, that was not a real problem. I thought I could write. I thought I would like to write, but the flow happened. And so, I mean, I would come up here and, you know, six hours later I would wander out, you know? So, so it was pretty cool. So I, you know, I'm, I'm happy you think that it's, it's reasonably good. And so the whole thing was frankly very fun because see, I've one of the, one of the, core capabilities that we talk about in the book is growth mindset. And I, I have it. I'm grateful to my parents for, I don't know why I have it, but I like trying and learning new things. So I was all in on it. I will say that I thank you for keep saying people should read it rather than we tell them. But what I think the thing that people, if I had to pick one thing that I came up with, that was, I felt, I felt really good when I thought of it was when I figured, huh, 
I'm going to write about what's going on through the eyes of a reporter. So throughout, you know, I mean, it was a, it was basically Andrew's story. And then a couple of times I was able to pull up and figure out ways to have other people looking in on what was going on. And that was that, you know, that was pretty fun. And writing that, I, we won't, we won't give anything away, but writing that first article was hilariously funny for me to write. And just thinking about Andrew's reaction when he saw this article about, you know, about him and a competitor, oh my God, I was laughing just writing it. So right. that was probably my, that was probably my favorite idea I came up with. What was the hardest part about writing the book? Oh, wow. <clears throat> I've read a lot of books on writing books and more, most of them say something like, like Stephen King's, by the way, on writing, it's the best writing book. I mean, you'll laugh. You never have to want to write anything. Just read that book. You'll laugh so hard. It's really funny. But one of the things that, that people tell you is you have to write every day. You have to write every day. And that sort of gets in your head a little bit and that the great art writers write every day. Well, you know, I, I do have a practice. <laughs> you know, I have clients. I've got business, you know, to help Catherine run. I've got it. So the hardest thing was actually when I would spend all weekend, which is really what I did for a long period of time, working on it. And honestly, I would miss it on Tuesday because I, I just couldn't. So the hard part was, was the putting it down and picking it up. But it was a little bit like, you know, when you've been with your best friend for a week and then, you know, oh gosh, you know, and now you know, by Tuesday you miss them again. So it's, yeah. so that, I think, I think that was it. I would say the other thing that Catherine and I did well together, but was, it's always tricky is, you know, having input into each other's sections was, was important. I mean, we, we had fleshed out most of the concepts. I mean, the big concept came out of her head, just to be crystal clear. But then working through what, what are the capabilities that we feel like people should have and, and how, how to write the, you know, some people say, wow, writing the fiction, God, that, that's the hard part. And I'm like, I don't know, writing 40 pages of how to, and I think that's actually really hard, you know? So we were the, we, we each had the right, we were the right tool for the right job, but the but collaboration on stuff like that, you know, cause you don't want to step on, toes too much, you know, but, but at the same time, you need growth mindset. You have to be open to other people's point of view and both names are going to be on it. But I think the putting it down and picking it up was the hardest part. Hmm. Well, that's a, that's a good thing to have be the hardest part. You know, you've really found something when it's easy and enjoyable and you just find yourself kind of swimming downstream. You know, one thing that was really eye-opening to me with the book <clears throat> was the fable concept. I've, I used to read a lot of fiction now, I, I I mean, admittedly, I read a lot of articles. I, I read more short form things. I'm reading emails all day, I tell you that much. But this was great to get back into reading a full book and on the, the paper pages. But the other books I typically read are how-tos or, you know, they're mm -hmm. these business books. And this really opened my mind that, wait a minute, you can convey all of these lessons in a way where I'm just ingrained in the story and learning I don't feel like I'm hitting my head against the wall like, oh, I got to read another page or, you know, w w was that something that you've experienced previously or was it something that you and Catherine came up with that concept? Uh, it's two, two, two major answers to that. So I knew, let me start with the second one first. So I am looking over to the right. So Patrick Lencioni wrote Five Dysfunctions of the Team probably about 20 years ago. 
It's a fable. And then the back, there's sort of, he breaks down. John Gordon wrote The Energy Bus. Hmm. Uh, these are two that come to mind, which are stories. I would argue, uh, argue is probably the wrong one. I think this is like a fable slash novel, frankly, because there's a lot more conflict and characters are you know a little more developed and such but but the idea of a very successful writing model being fable coupled you know kind of a how-to i would say those are the principal inspirations for us doing it that way the reality is that that i have because i'm been keeping track of all of these things like misery is optional and you know, a number of them, which we, we could rattle off if I want, if you want me to, but yeah. things I've been keeping track of stories on forever, you know, going through the life of business. And so I told the part, I told all my clients, I told the partners in my, my goodbye letter that I sent out that I was going to be writing. So, and I, I thought I might do fiction, but I didn't really have a, I thought it would be the second thing I did. Honestly, I thought the first book was going to be kind of what you envisioned of which I have about 30 over here to the right. Right. which seems to be a very common and, and good don't many of them are really good, but they're kind of anecdotal. It, it'll be a story, you know, it'll be, Hey, this company, you know, the theme is this, these companies do it really well, or these companies didn't do it well. And you kind of go through them and there's just a lot of them out there. And I was struggling with how I was going to take Catherine's ideas and my ideas and blend them together and do it in that fashion. And then she came up one day and it's been a while now, but she said, Huh. Well, you always want to write fiction. Why don't you just write a why don't you write a fable? Yeah. <clears throat> wow. And I slept on it for Dave McGuire. I slept on it for a few days. And I thought, huh. Why not? And I so that's that's it. I mean, in a nutshell, it's her idea. But it but I would say there are some really great ones. And the other thing, again, we'll see if it works, but nobody was doing it. Mm-hmm. Nobody's been doing this for a while. And yet I don't know why, because they're super those books I described have been super successful. So yeah, so we'll see. It's yeah, it's fun. You know, one of the rules of marketing is how you differentiate yourself, right? How are you different from everybody else rather than how are you the same? And it sounds like you found a great way of a kind of a time-tested model, but one that maybe it's trends, maybe there's other reasons, maybe it's not obvious to people to convey things through a fable, but you found a way to teach readers some valuable insights in a way that is very different than the other books next to it on the shelf. You did mention yep. some quotes that you want to, you like to rattle off. I'd love to hear some of those. You know, we have a little time. So yeah, lay it on me, lay it on the listeners. I want to hear some of these, these quotes that we can uh, take home and think about. Well, what, it's funny. We got press asked this week for something related to what's going on. After you left, you know, I got tired of doing, uh, these Is that eight, when everything like I, went downhill? Uh, total, totally. I thought so. I heard uh, rumors. I just thank you for yeah, it was, we, Yeah, it was. <laughs> it just never was the same. Yeah, I hear that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I ended up doing, I got tired. Frankly, I got I got tired of doing the sort of standard annual review meetings, right? So I I would I just one one I thought okay I'm gonna completely rip it off from David Letterman and I just started doing Ed's top ten. That was my annual meeting talk. Oh, awesome. And so one year, you know, it was like around two thousand and eight and nine, you can imagine the theme was sort of things I never want to hear again, you know, like about the economy and but where I was going with this is that I was at the, the uh people the question, this is serious. So there was an HR media uh magazine asked us like what's for an opinion as to what's going on right now with turnover, with recruiting challenges, with where, why, 
why can't people find people and what are sort of progressive you know companies doing and it reminded me of of this talk i was doing about client service and one of my lines was avoid osfa thinking okay and 300 people are like what He's like, is this, I don't know, is this some Grateful Dead term? And what, what, because, what, yeah, whatever, because people knew I was a deadhead. But I was like, no. So, true story. I was in Nordstrom. I was trying to buy a gift for my wife. And I'm looking down. It's like, I know what S means. I mean, small. I know M is medium, large. I don't, what the heck is OSFA? O S F A. Couldn't tell you. One size fits all. <laughs> And so, so my point to the group was, we got We can't have us for thinking when we're dealing with client service. You know, you basically have to. You have to pivot. Actually, thinking of Nordstrom, they're great. You know, they're you know they're great. They're a great thing with the client service, which is everybody gets a card day one and says, uh, rule number one: use your best judgment. Right. Rule number two, there are no other rules. So it was that kind of that mindset. So, you know, misery is optional is the one I, I certainly I use a ton. It's not really a quote as much as a, another thing that I, I like to say. It's really about communication, which is the, the same sort. I don't think it was the same speech, but it was about, I think it was about selling hmm. and communication. And I said, here's the deal. First off, smile. Seriously, it's amazing how many people walk around, you know, just looking grumpy. You think somebody's going to want to talk to you, but right. but what I what I said was, look, if if your email is longer than the width of my granddaughter's hand, and she was three, then you need to think of another way to communicate because well people can't people can't remember that long. And by the way, if you're in the office, stop by. And it was just a little, you know, a little thing like that. So the idea that this is a Catherine quote, so, but I want to repeat it because I think it's in the book and it absolutely came out of Catherine's head and she firmly believes it. And I believe it as well, which is that you remember one of them comes out in the fable, but it's to see everything and everyone as opportunities to learn. Mm. Everyone and everything are our teachers. If you can have that mindset, by the way, Catherine's a Nietzsche and Buddhist, <laughs> so things tend to, you know, she, her, her favorite quote is everything's perfect. Our job is to find out why, which as an INTJ can drive me nuts some days, but that's okay. <laughs> but, but I think that, that that's a great mindset to have that, you know, I may not agree with you, but I need to hear you. I need to listen. You know, and I can draw my own judgment, but it starts with listening. I'm going to learn something if I, and I learn a whole lot more with my mouth shut, so I think I will do that. Boy, that's a lesson for our entire culture to learn nowadays. Before I let you go, why don't you tell us two things. Number one, who is this book for? So if you want to know or want to learn you know, who should get this book, and then where and when can they get it? Great. Thank you. There are a number of audiences, which is why I think you know uh, it will be – many people will like it. I mean, it's – if you are a CEO or if you are a, a, a leader of a team and you are thinking about a way to think about your business or your team, you're, you're, you're our core, core customer. It's the kind of thing that you could use in a team building exercise. You could build your HR culture, which then leads to the next obvious one, which is HR leaders, you know, people that are members of SHRM, you know, those types of things. There is a, an angle in here of purpose-driven, obviously, and... What I know is that 
as as you said so well, and I apparently said to you 17 years ago, and it comes out in the book, we spend more time at work than anywhere else in our lives. Yeah. And so why not make it a place where purpose comes through, there's joy, things like that. So this should appeal, frankly, to people like you who are younger, who are growing their careers, but they aren't, you know, they aren't, haven't reached the pinnacle yet or anything. You got, John, you got a whole lot more in front of you. I can guarantee that. So it, it, it does appeal to, you know, millennials in a sense and, and younger executives. So those, I mean, those are the primary three. I think if you like fiction, um, you know, I guess that's, there is a half possibility that a lot of, a lot of people who might not think about picking up a bill, a business book, mm-hmm. I, I you know, I'm biased, of course, but I, I do think the characters are kind of interesting and you'll, you'll laugh out loud a few times and, and you, you will see Andrew and yourself there, there, and, and others, but Absolutely. there's no, no, he may, he, he falls into all the traps that we all fall into and, and evolves. And that's, that's really the human condition. So, yeah. So I, I, I think the, those probably cover it. So, all right. So the book is officially being released on September 20th. Uh, 2021, the publisher's Conscious Capitalism Press. It's available for pre-order now on our website, which is consciousincapable.com. So you can, can pre-order now. And it's also available. We go right to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indie Books, Apple Books, and things like that. Bulk orders are always available. Yeah. And yeah, so we've got, you know, six weeks or so until official publish date, but that's where we are. That's great. Well, I so appreciate your time, Ed, having an hour here to get your insights and share about this tremendous book. I really enjoyed reading it myself. I definitely encourage everybody listening to go out and get a copy. Buy one for a friend as well. You won't thank regret you. it. So, Ed Ofterdinger, thank you so much. It's great to reconnect. I appreciate you being on the DLC Drop podcast. John, I appreciate it so much, and uh, I'm very proud of everything you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the DLC Drop podcast. This podcast is part of the Esports Futuri Podcast Network and produced by Innovation Media Enterprises. Make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast channel and leave us a review. 